0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a do-nothing legislative branch deliberately crippled by Trump, who has his lackeys in the Senate like Ted Cruz and in the House like the new Speaker Mike Johnson, killing a deal on the border on Trump's orders to hurt Biden while impeaching the head of Department of Homeland Security as theatre and distraction leading one to wonder whether there is such a thing as the national interest any more in the GOP. Joining us is Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and during the Clinton administration as special assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs. In 2021, she was appointed a member of the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, the President Emerita of the American Constitution Society. Her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections, and we will discuss her article at the Washington Monthly, Elon Musk's War on the New Deal and Democracy. Then we look into how the sick and distorted end-times theology of Christian Zionism is driving U.S. support for Israel's war on Gaza, because in the evangelical Christian worldview, the 1948 creation of Israel was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, making Palestinians the enemies of God, since they are the enemies of Israel. Joining us is Jonathan Ketubh, who is an international human rights attorney, co-founder of the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq, and co-founder of Nonviolence International. A Palestinian who grew up as a conservative evangelical Christian and continues to be a believer in the faith, we will discuss his article at Al Jazeera, Why Do Evangelical Christians Support Israel? Then finally, we'll assess the impact on coverage of this year's elections from the rash of layoffs of journalists at the Los Angeles Times, Time and Business Week, while hundreds of staffers at Condé Nast, Forbes, the New York Daily News and others are protesting with walkouts over cuts. Joining us is Christian Doiji Phillips, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Southern California whose research is focused on the intersection of race, gender and immigration in American politics. She's the author of Nowhere to Run, Race, Gender and Immigration in American Elections. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep background briefing completely independent, commercial free and corporate free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor at Georgetown Law and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She serves as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and during the Clinton administration, a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. In 2021, she was appointed a member of the president's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, and she's the president emerita of the American Constitution Society And her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections. And she has an article at the Washington Monthly, Elon Musk's War on the New Deal and Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Caroline Fredericks.
1: It's great to be on.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Caroline. And since you were the uh, Special Assistant to the President for Legislative Affairs, in the intro I mentioned that we have a do-nothing legislative branch deliberately crippled by Trump who has his lackeys in the Senate like Ted Cruz who used to rail about the, the broken border now uh, blowing up the bipartisan border deal. And in the House, you've got the new speaker, Mike Johnson, killing a deal on the border on Trump's orders in order to hurt Biden while impeaching the head of the Department of Homeland Security as theater and distraction. And Trump recently said that he wants the economy to tank to hurt Biden and help him. So the question then becomes is there such a thing as the national interest anymore in the GOP?
1: Well it's it's hard to think so um and you referenced my my Washington monthly piece and that was really about how I mean Elon Musk does a lot of things that seem to be clearly against the national interest. But in this case the case that SpaceX uh is bringing they were sued um by uh, by some workers under the National Labor Relations Act um, for interfering with their ability to act collectively, um, as is their right, it's protected. Um, and instead of just rebutting the arguments, he's taking it full throttle and saying that the, the whole apparatus of the National Labor Relations Act and the NA- National Labor Relations Board is unconstitutional. And he's being joined now by a variety of other Uh, partners, but now the latest, um, Trader Joe's. Um, But this is this kind of burn it down attitude um, that I think characterizes um, so many on the right uh, and so many of these plutocrats who think that they can just buy our government.
0: Well, but I think there's a similarity, isn't there, between Elon Musk and Trump in as much as, you know, you can question, you can certainly question Trump's mental state, and to some extent, Elon Musk's, perhaps you know, because he's stoned a lot of the time, but you know, <laughs> the, I, I just don't understand how we are normalizing the press. Everybody is normalizing Trump as though he's a, a legitimate politician and a presidential candidate, and why well, we're it's, normalizing it's Elon Musk.
1: It's absolutely true. He's treated like he's a titan of industry, that everything he's done um, has been due to the brilliance of his management skills um, and his ecumen in in um, in technology, but let's face it. I mean, Tesla got its start through a massive grant um, from the federal government that was massively attacked by the Republicans under the o- during the Obama administration. So it's the the irony is uh, a little thick here, um, but I think uh, Ian, you know, you've you've obviously said something that I think is really important, which is. Um, the fact that the media has so normalized the kind of behavior just because it's been sort of nonstop. And as a result, um, they write about it like it's the horse race, right? It's just, you know, Biden, he issues, uh, you know, a, a, a statement about such and such. And, you know, Trump has a hissy fit and and screams at a judge in a courtroom where he's been um, has to pay defamation um, uh, after having committed sexual assault. Um, and rape on egene Carroll, and these two things are not equivalent, but they're treated the same in the press
0: No, it's extraordinary that these two trolls i mean the damage that Donald Trump has done to this country and would do if he was reelected it's not just this country it's the world it's It's almost like how do <laughs> how did this happen? How did somebody that's so malignant, so evil, have so much influence, and so much power? And to a lesser extent, the same question about Elon Musk.
1: Well, I mean, I think these have been created by the ecosystem of the right. Um, that the you know the whole um, kind of unholy alliance, um, or what I like to, to think of is the you know the unholy marriage of 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 theocracy and plutocracy, um, has provided the platform for these particular. Uh, very unworthy <laughs> figures to come forward and dominate our social discussion and potentially control our government once again. Um, but I think it's it's the sort of the, what the what the right has been working on for so long, which is to control um, and destroy the apparatus of governing. Um, and you've probably heard the Heritage Foundation, which is now kind of serving as the government in exile for. What they hope is the future President Trump is creating a master plan um, for a really definitive destruction of government as we know it, um, with uh, destruction of the civil service, destruction of the environmental protection, infrastructure, worker protection, uh, and on and on. And um, they are, you know, right now writing it out, Project 2025, um, in order to implement that, you know, very, very dark vision.
0: Well, you mentioned the unholy alliance of theocracy and plutocracy, and that characterizes the current Supreme Court, which has been captured by plutocrats, and it's a combination of moral authoritarianism and laissez-faire capitalism. And the recent case before them, the SEC versus Jakesi, is frightening in the sense that uh, we already had West Virginia versus the EPA which is cuts the government authority uh, in terms of clean air. And if the Supreme Court goes the way that Gorsuch and Thomas and Alito certainly will vote, and I'm not sure about the others, then group of unelected political operatives in robes will be deciding what kind of air we breathe, what water we drink, what food we eat, our health and safety in the workplace, etc., it's an extraordinary thing. Do you think that the public are aware of what's at stake here?
1: Well, I certainly hope so. I, you know, I'd like to. Um, I saved uh, the comics from this weekend because the Doonesbury um, uh, comic was actually really insightful, as it often is, I uh, had a conversation among some journalists about the Supreme Court saying, you know. Boy, the Supreme Court has so much power. Think about these decisions. They've had such a negative impact in so many ways. And they talked about the Dobbs decision, um, the Bruin decision, which is about unleashing uh, guns in America. And and then one of them said, well, can you even name a decision by the Supreme Court that didn't have widespread negative impact? And one of them said, yeah, that ethics code that they issued, that has no impact at all. I thought, well, <laughs> it was really just on point. You know, um, they have so much to say about how we all run our own private lives and the fact that they're, you know, allowing um, access to guns in a way that is just um, absolutely detrimental to public safety. Um, in the meantime, they can't be bothered Um to um, actually abide by ethics rules as if they are completely above it all um, and entitled to live a life of luxury as Supreme Court justices
0: so is there an example in history where the aristocrats and the plutocrats have armed the peasants
1: um, well that's that's a good a good question um, um, you know I'm, I'm uh, I think they're also destroying the peasants though I mean it's sort of what sure. Elon Elon Musk said about the NLRB and unions he says he hates how they creates they create um, you know kings and peasants it's like well actually they're trying to help those so-called peasants have rights um, hmm. so it's not it's not everybody they're certainly you know appealing to some of the basis instincts of a group of um of people on the right who feel white white guys you know mostly kind of um, they're not even it's it's kind of the I don't know I wouldn't call the working class they're sort of you know um, small business owners and so forth it's kind of the January 6th gang um, and and telling them that somehow like everything has gone wrong for them and it's all the fault of these other people these 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 women of women people of color um, you know the the elite, Um, And it's, you know, that all those bad people have taken away their status and um, and look at what's happening with our moral uh, situation that, you know, abortion and gay marriage and, you know, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the world is coming to an end. Um, And that kind of, um, you know, politics of of despair and 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 anger um, and grievance, you know, a kind of classic Trump stuff.
0: Well, as it happens, you know, there's no question that. Elon Musk is a very powerful right-wing troll with his own media outlet and billions to burn through. But now he's joined in the anti-DEI initiatives and legislations. He's now railing with these other lesser-known right-wing trolls over what's happening in the airline industry with this turkey of a plane that Boeing has built that has problems. They're blaming that now the anti DEI people they're blaming it on on the fact that you have black pilots. Oh and one God. of them one of these characters a uh, very popular right-wing troll <laughs> said uh, I would never fly in a plane with a black pilot. I mean
1: it's unbelievable. Well yeah last time I, I was I took an airplane I did see the pilot outside you know tinkering with a with a wrench and trying to repair the plane because that's how it happens right. <laughs> <You
2: know? laughs>
1: Of course, it's the pilot's fault. Um, that's 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 unhinged, but I guess right. not surprising. Well, let's talk
0: about your article at the Washington Monthly, Elon Musk war on the New Deal and democracy, and particularly focusing on on the National Labor Relations Board, um, which has been around for about 90 years, and Musk's uh, SpaceX is contesting a complaint against it because of this New Deal institutions claiming it's unconstitutional, which is uh, something that also Trader Joe's lawyers are now echoing. What's the chances of any of this working with the Supreme Court, which I'm afraid could rule in their favor?
1: Well, I think you just answered your own question, but that's right. I mean, they're playing to an audience. that's very receptive. Um, you already mentioned the EPA versus, versus West Virginia um, this this sort of so-called major questions doctrine, the non-delegation doctrine. These are all approaches to interpreting statutes um, that take the power away from expert agencies and give it to guess who? The Supreme Court. Well, in this case, um, that same group of people has also indicated um, that they are very open to these challenges about constitutional structures of, of agencies um, and that the agencies that have Um, Either administrative law judges like the NLRB, um, like um, the SEC, like so many others, um, they're being challenged as being a violation of separation of powers. Um, But also the board structure is having a a multi-member district with some kind of uh, removal restrictions, which is true of, guess what? all of those um, uh, independent agencies at the federal level and, you know, all across the states, they also use these same structures. And why? Because there's certain agencies you want to prevent from being influenced by politics. They're supposed to be impartial decision makers. And that's why the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, um, the National Labor Relations Board, you know, want them made up of just members of one party, they're supposed, they're, they're analyzing, um, uh, cases and, uh, uh, and applying, um, policy in, in a fair handed way. Um, and they want to destroy that. And so everybody in those positions will be now, you know, if Trump wins, will be a Trumpy. Um, and guess what happens, um, in that case? Um, but in any case, this is a major attack on the whole system of government that we've had since the new deal. So just in the last couple of minutes
0: then, Caroline, given the expression that money talks, I won't repeat the rest of it, but money talks, and that's clearly what's happening with with Musk. Nevertheless, there is a possibility, isn't there, of Tesla being unionized? I know he's, he's an anti-union, as you say in the New York Times deal book summit he said i disagree with the idea of unions i just don't like anything that creates a lords and peasants sort of thing well as you pointed out <laughs> it's the peasants that uh, unions help uh, because of the predation of the lords but uh, what are the chances of the the new head of the UAW who's i think showing reviving uh, unions and their influence in a way that's very surprising and quite admirable do you think there's any chance that must can be brought down a peg or two.
1: I certainly hope so, and and I think they have a great track record. I mean, they got the big three on the record. They got great um, uh, collective bargaining agreements. Uh, I think the Tesla workers must be looking at that and thinking, "Hmm, that looks pretty good to us." And um, but I think that's you know partly explains you know his approach, right? Don't just try and fight the union and tell the workers why it's better for them not to have a union or maybe pay them more money so they don't feel like they need a union treat them better um but instead just just try and destroy it uh, mm. because that's obviously his his method um and you know one of the things i wrote about in my piece was you know this guy's about killing off democracy i mean he's he he uses his power with with uh with spacex to actually hurt ukraine and its efforts to um throughout the russian invaders um interfered with with um their um their communications infrastructure that was using the the spacex satellites because he's sympathetic to putin i mean at this guy think about that no. you have a, a plutocrat who thinks he can decide who wins and loses wars and sides with an autocrat and dictator
0: well i i think it's pretty clear isn't it caroline that what putin runs is a mafia state he regulates the oligarchs, and that's the kind of uh, world that, that Peter Thiel and Elon Musk would like this country to be run by the oligarchs, and the government to be weak, and uh, them to essentially uh,
1: rule. Uh, that's that's absolutely true. It's it's clear that that's what they want. They think the rest of us are idiots, and they're the brilliant ones, and you know because they're rich. Exactly. Um, and you know they shouldn't have to be constrained.
0: Well, thanks for your piece and uh, alerting the public to this important issue, and I appreciate you joining us.
1: All right. Well, it's great to talk to you, and um, you know I'm always here. Um, such a great show that you have.
0: Well, thank you, Caroline. And again, I've been speaking with Caroline Fredrickson, a visiting professor George Georgetown Law and a strategic counselor on democracy and power at the Open Markets Institute. She served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and during the Clinton administration, a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And in 2021, she was appointed a member of the president's commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. She's the president emerita of the American Constitution Society and her books include The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections and she has an article at the Washington Monthly Elon Musk's War on the New Deal and Democracy We're going to get brief station break we're back looking into the sick and distorted end times theology which is driving US support for Israel's war on Gaza
1: I walked
2: up on a mountain in the middle of the sky could see every farm and every
0: town I could see all the people in this whole wide world. That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down. That's a union that'll tear the fascists down. When I think of the men and the ships going down while the Russians fight on across the Don, there's London in ruins and Paris in chains. Good people. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jonathan Ketoub, who is an international human rights attorney, co-founder of the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq, and co-founder of Nonviolence International, a Palestinian who grew up as a conservative evangelical Christian and continues to be a believer in the faith. He has an article at Al Jazeera, Why Do Evangelical Christians Support Israel? Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Ketoub.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And you point out in the Al Jazeera article that in the evangelical Christian world, the 1948 creation of Israel was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, making Palestinians the enemies of God since they are the enemies of Israel. So that's quite a burden to carry, is it not?
3: It is if you believe that that is true.
0: Well, a lot of Americans do, and particularly those who support the Republican Party, including the new House Speaker, for example.
3: Well, that is true. There have been uh, a number of prominent uh, American politicians who uh, believe in those things, uh, including, particularly during the past administration, uh, the Vice President, the Secretary of State, Pompeo, and, and, and other very high officials.
0: Well, I always had a problem with that, Jonathan, because I, you know, cover national security issues, and it's a direct and dangerous conflict of interest if you have an investment in the end of the world, in the end times, in the in Armageddon, in the Book of Revelation, as did Pompeo, who was both the head of the CIA and uh, the head of the State Department, and the Vice President, as you mentioned, Pence, and now you've got. Mike Johnson, the new Speaker of the House. I mean, they want the world to end so that they can all get raptured up. But their job, particularly if you're head of the CIA and the State Department and the Vice President, you're stewards of our national security. So that, to me, is a fundamental conflict of interest.
3: It's also a very dangerous one. It's not a conflict of interest where your financial... Dealings may be uh, illegal. This is a conflict of interest, which which de- which has to do with you know war, World War Three, end of the world, using nuclear weapons, uh, national policy towards Russia, China, whoever, Iran.
0: Well, I remember some time ago, Jonathan, I had a conversation with the Anglican bishop. Of Jerusalem, Bishop Samir Kafiti, and he mentioned to me that it was Palestinian Christians who kept Christianity alive for its first seven centuries until it spread into Europe. So to that extent, all Christians owe Palestinian Christians a great debt, do they not?
3: Well, they, they, they do, and uh... Uh, I, I'd like to think of it not just as a debt, but as a uh, continued brotherhood and solidarity and uh, uh, caring. Uh, we are members of the same body, and we're told in the Bible that when one part of the body is suffering, uh, the others also feel it. And, and and many times Palestinian Christians say, you know, nobody feels our pain. Nobody cares that we are being attacked, oppressed, uh, conquered, deported, tortured, imprisoned. Uh, Nobody seems to care because we are the other. We are the enemies of Israel. We are the enemies of God. And and, and we feel that our siblings in the uh, Western Christian world uh, are abandoning us.
0: But is there also a problem here with the difference between the eye for an eye in the Old Testament and turning the other cheek in the New Testament? In other words, it seems that the Israelis and the Palestinians, not necessarily the Palestinian Christians, but Israelis and the Palestinian Muslims, are locked in an Old Testament battle.
3: Well, yes, yes. Uh, but it goes beyond that. Uh, I think even uh, even outside of this conflict, uh, Christians today, most of them, uh, whenever they want to go to war and whether, whenever they want to justify killing other people, they go back to the Old Testament to find their religious justification. Uh, Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. Christ brought a whole new perspective where the, it's the kingdom of God it's uh, a new set of values that are diametrically opposed uh, to a tribal territorial uh, this worldly uh, concept of power Christ's kingdom is different it's it's one of peace it's one of love it's one of even magnanimity towards your enemy not just your friend
0: right uh, well of course there's the famous Good Samaritan parable, isn't there?
3: Absolutely.
0: Right. It's a
3: new. It's a new ethic. Uh, it's a new way of looking at things. That's why it's called the new. The New Testament. It's a new co- covenant between God and His people, which is not limited to a particular area, territorially, or to a particular tribe, the Hebrews. It's it's God's uh, salvation is open to all. And he's ushering in a new ethic, a new kingdom of God uh, that's open to everybody and and that is diametrically opposed to the concept of ruling through power. You know, when he came into Jerusalem, uh, he did not ride as a conqueror uh, on a white horse. He he rode on a a donkey uh, with humility, with uh, love, with caring. Uh, a much more, uh, I think, egalitarian and humanitarian uh, view uh, than that of uh, the kingdoms of the world.
0: So going back to the formation of Christian Zionism, it started under Israeli Prime Minister Shamir, who was a very hard right guy. He He was one of the terrorists along with Begin that did all the bombing and terrorism that drove the British out before 48 and he was very hardline and he figured that this was, even though APAC had a lot of influence on the Democratic Party he thought that there was a way to capture the Republican Party via the Christian Zionists who would become the most v- reliable of the goyim and they are politically they're absolutely locked in blindly but it's a very pornographic I would say form of spirituality to want People like me and others to burn in the in the lake of fire in order for them to be raptured up into heaven. I mean,
3: well, it's 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 beyond that. As far as the certainly as far as the politicians are concerned, who are Christian Zionists or who are Israeli, uh, it's 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 a very uh, useful doctrine that has nothing to do with their actual beliefs. In fact, they, they, they joke about it, and they, they make fun of, of American Christians who really believe those things. Yeah, for them, it's just a convenient uh, political argument. The founder of the state of Israel, Ben-Gurion, uh, was an atheist. He used to say, I don't believe in God, but I believe he gave us this land. Uh, it's a very convenient argument uh, by somebody who is not, not really a believer. Uh, uh, that, that we can use some religious language and mythology to justify our political positions even though we don't believe it i mean most israeli uh, zionists today uh, they, they don't believe all this nonsense about end days and about uh, armageddon and uh, uh, the coming of the second coming of christ they don't believe all that stuff but they find it extremely convenient Okay. Uh, to, to convince Congress to give them more money and more weapons and to move the embassy and to uh, sort of uh, give them a unique uh, position in, in American politics that, that that is not warranted by uh, U.S. Uh, political interests but which can be sort of borrowed over from the religious sphere.
0: Well, indeed, the book of Revelation, of course, talks about in the prelude to the second coming, the Antichrist appears, and I can tell you the most perfect candidate for the Antichrist is none other than Donald Trump. He uh, is the, the embodiment of, <laughs> of, of what that rather difficult-to-read last book of the Bible, uh, the book of uh, Revelation.
3: The book of Revelation is a very uh, difficult book to read, uh, especially if you try to apply it to modern day uh, events. Uh, <laughs> but I, I I find the, the book of Revelation is interesting in its spiritual message of, of, of a whole new world, a new Jerusalem where you, uh, and, 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 and a salvation uh, in the midst of adversity. Uh, but, but I would be very reluctant to uh, to give direct parallels to any person or to any uh, government, right. to any regime. Well, you, you can uh, leave
0: that up to me, Jonathan. <laughs> but the Bible, of course, the Old Testament, was evoked by Benjamin Netanyahu early after the horrific yes. uh, Hamas attack on October the 7th. He, on national TV, talked about the Amalites, and made this genocidal speech saying that, you know, the Amalites, you have to kill them all, the women, the men, the children, the dogs, the donkeys, the goats, you name it. And, of course, we saw a very brutal thing happen today in Gaza where Israeli special forces went into a hospital, disguised as doctors, assassinated three Palestinians supposedly with the mask, probably were with the mask. One of them, by the way, was paralysed in a hospital bed, and they killed him. You know, so yeah. it's a very, very brutal war, and it does seem to be basically a re- just an enraged response to an incredibly brutal attack on on Israeli civilians. So we are witnessing the worst of humanity. There are we not?
3: Yes, uh, and, and, and again, I think this is a very important to note that, that, that for many Jews, the, the whole Amalek uh, thing is no longer operative. Uh, the, the, the commandment of genocide, uh, difficult to understand in the first place, uh, is, is now considered no longer operative because we don't know who Amalek is. Forget it. It's no longer operative. And then comes Netanyahu, who is a secularist, and he says, no, it is operative. We know who is Amalek. They are our enemies. And we have to use genocide. This commandment of genocide, am, uh, uh, was a problem for Jewish theologians. And they got over it by saying it's no longer operative and relevant. And now here comes uh, Zionist politicians who say, oh, yeah, it's operative. We we like it. We will, we will use it. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a very dangerous... Uh, Aspect of Christian Zionism as well as of Zionism itself. To use Holy Scripture to justify political activities that are abhorrent and that run against humanity and ethics and international law and modern Jewish values themselves as well. Because Judaism has progressed, has changed, has moved away from uh, some of these uh, difficult, horrific Old Testament uh, stories and verses.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Jonathan, President Biden is saying, as it's, as he's Secretary of State, that the, as soon as this war's over, not that it's likely, because Netanyahu wants to keep the war going, because the longer the war goes on, the longer he stays in power, and the minute the war's over he'll be booted out of office um, and Benny Gantz will replace him. So what are the chances then of some kind of reconciliation in the Christian context? Do you think that it's still possible to have a two-state solution? Uh,
3: I think it's difficult to have a two-state solution. It is possible to have a one-state solution, which is based on equality rather than on supremacy of one party over the other. I think it is possible to have peace. Jews and Arabs can live together, in fact, have lived together. For the last 13 centuries, there has been very much uh, peace between Arabs and Jews. So this is not an eternal fight that goes back to biblical times. This is a modern political phenomena, and I hope it will be over. Uh, I hope to be living to see it uh, happen. Uh, because uh, the zionist movement is doing great harm not just to palestinians but also to jews and to judaism itself it is forcing a revival of old testament ethics that no longer have a place in the modern world uh, which 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 really has moved a lot towards equality and a lot towards Human rights, and a lot towards uh, accepting universal principles rather than uh, particularistic ones.
0: But just in closing, what do you do about Hamas and the hideous behaviour of raping women and murdering and burning children? And well,
3: a, a lot, a lot of these stories, by the way, have been defunct. Whether it's well, a, a lot of them have been also have been supported, etc. Hamas is a political movement, like other political movements. It has done some horrible things, but it has also done some other things as well. And it's a movement that you have to deal with and you have to make peace with. You don't destroy it and destroy everything that's relating to it. That's just like saying, I want to destroy the Republicans. I hate Republicans, anything that that it touches MAGA should be killed, should be destroyed, should be under, no, you deal with it, you try and change it, you try and engage with it, uh, you try and uh, reach compromises with it, you don't have to accept them, you don't have to uh, support them, uh, but you have to deal with them. They are part of the, the, the Palestinian people, just like the MAGA movement and the, and the Republicans are part of the American people
0: just in closing should they get away with murdering civilians is nobody that-
3: get away with murdering civilians and that goes for israelis as well if we believe murdering civilians is bad oh boy look at what they're doing today every day 100 children get killed children never mind civilians children get killed we've had over 10 11000 children killed never mind civilians Children are killed. Children are having their limbs amputated, sometimes without anesthesia. Over a thousand children have had amputations, some without. uh, No, nobody should get away with that. I agree totally.
0: Well, Jonathan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Ketoub, who is an international human rights attorney, co-founder of the Palestinian human rights group Al Haq, and co-founder of Nonviolence International, a Palestinian who grew up as a conservative evangelical Christian and continues to be a believer in the faith. He has an article at Al Jazeera, Why Do Evangelical Christians Support Israel? We can take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the impact on coverage of this year's elections from the rash of layoffs of journalists at the Los Angeles Times, Time, and Business Insider, while hundreds of staffers at Condé Nast, Forbes, the New York Daily News, and others are protesting with walkouts over cuts. then you tell me heading Lincoln County Road or I'm a Seem like I've been down this way before
1: Is there any truth in that senor?
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christian Yogi Phillips, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Southern California, whose research is focused on the intersection of race, gender, and immigration in American politics. And she's the author of Nowhere to Run, Race, Gender, and Immigration in American Elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christian Yogi Phillips.
2: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
0: So, Christian, thanks for joining us. And a little over a week ago, the LA Times staff uh, went out on a one-day walkout anticipating layoffs. Well, they sure happened. 20% of the Mm -hmm. newsroom was laid off about a week ago. And Time Magazine is cutting uh, its staffers. Business Insider is also going to cut its workforce by 8%. Hundreds of staffers at Condé Nast, Forbes, New York Daily News, and others have done walkouts to protest planned cuts. So how is this all going to impact the 2024 20, elections in November, which are a critical election? Most most observers think it's one of the most critical elections in American history. So surely this is going to have an impact, isn't it?
2: Well, I, I do think, you know, it is definitely concerning, given that the, we have the election coming, you know, one of the things I thought of immediately when I saw the news about the LA Times was, you know how important it is uh, when you're heading into election that people feel confident about what they know about what's going on. You know, we teach our students here to be critical and careful consumers of the news. Um, you know, we teach them find you know news sites you trust with actual on the ground reporters who are seeking out real evidence. And that's just harder to do, you know, when there are major news organizations cutting like you said a fifth or a quarter of their staff. Um, you know, I think confidence is so important, especially for communities that aren't um don't typically feel represented in elections and in a presidential year, you know lower confidence means that people are going to stay home, and you know what we need is more participation, not less. so I am pretty concerned about how this um pattern of newsrooms um, cutting staff is going to shape. People's ability to access good, well reported information that they believe in and they have faith in going forward.
0: Well, I think that explains, doesn't it, uh, why a lot of people rely on, for example, endorsements by the LA Times for these, uh, you know, obscure ballot initiatives, which are mm-hmm. always full of distraction. You never know what to believe because of the pernicious ads that usually as- associate with these initiatives quite often that aren't the opposite of the way they're being packaged, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the reality is just like American life, American modern elections are complicated. You know, in California, we we uh, we do a good job of giving voters a lot to decide on, I think is a, a short way to put it. But, you know, in, in that sort of morass of lots of different issues and advocates, um, I think that local news organizations play an incredibly important role. You know, there's Pew data that came out I think last year that's, you know, showed that while there has been some decline, you know, most Americans still really trust their local news organizations more than other media sources, more than national news and even more than social media. Um, You know, there's a little bit of a difference by age. Um, Younger voters who are under 30 um, trust social media news sources um, as much as they do um, other more traditional legacy media. But overall. Um, The the highest rates of trust in news sources for news about politics are these local news organizations. And I think particularly for the partially for the reason that you state, you know, our local politics are complicated and there's a lot to sort out. And so I think people are really looking to those local news organizations for resources. And my hope is that going forward, you know, organizations like the L.A. Times um, working in partnership with the journalists and reporters who have expertise in generating that news content. We'll figure out a way to, you know, create uh, information that people feel good about.
0: So I mentioned uh, in the beginning a number of newsrooms being slashed. But Mm -hmm. before any of this happened, at the national level, you had cuts at CNN, really radical cuts. Mm -hmm. They got rid of their documentary division, which really did great work. The Washington Post, of course, it's owned by a billionaire, as is the L.A. Times. NPR have mm-hmm. cut their workforce, Vice Media all but disappeared, Sports Illustrated, uh, Fox Media, NBC News, CNBC. So it's happening across the board. But mm-hmm. let's talk about this uh, report that came out of uh, some research done at Columbia University in October that estimated that the big tech giants, Google and Meta, should pay news outlets fourteen billion mm. per year in revenues for their content and uh, searches. So, if they were ponying up what they owe, we wouldn't probably be having this discussion, would we?
2: <laughs> well, I have to say that um, you know the path forward to make um, legacy media outlets s- financially stable into the future is you know outside of my research area. I have to say, but. What I will say is that, you know, the more that we're having conversations and and I think that, you know, that list you just gave, so many of those news sources are are things that people have turned to, you know, for for decades and years for for news coverage. Right. Even just having that as sort of the drumbeat going into an election, you know, cuts at NPR, our own local station, KCRW just announced um, some buyouts a few weeks ago. Right. CNN time, these these big organizations, I think that does do something you know that that is kind of playing in the background for people who pay attention to where they're getting their um, resources from in terms of um, news about politics and what's happening in elections And you know we know that it's not evenly distributed across the population. Um, we know that from surveys that Republicans tend to be a lot more skeptical about, um, the information coming from national news organizations like the ones you've listed, than Democrats do. But, you know, I would say that in general, it, it, is, it does rec- represent um, a, a really troubling set of circumstances that there isn't a real clear path forward. I know that Columbia report, you know, suggests that the way to move forward is by having these other outlets um, pay for the content that they're carrying from legacy media organizations. And I don't, I don't know if that's the right model. But it's clear that we need to sort of sh- – there is a shift in um, the overall structure of media going forward and how it's going to shape our politics.
0: Well, I think it's outrageous what they get away with, these big tech jobs, <laughs> because this is expensive stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Investigative journalism is incredibly expensive and full of mm-hmm. lawsuits. So you've got to have deep pockets to per- defend the journalists. And, you know, they just get this stuff for free. And it's because Mm -hmm. of Section 230 of the Communications Act signed under Bill Clinton that they're getting away with it because they they say that we're not publishers, you know. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a, a really key, isn't it, if you could change Section 230. I mean, we've had this discussion about the outrageous stuff that's online, hate mm-hmm. speech, et cetera, vis a vis Elon Musk, et cetera. But a, a part of that same argument is, should be, the extent to which they're basically, you know, pirating all this free content, which they then distribute and say, no, no, we're, we're not publishers. We're not responsible for the content. We're, we're merely conduits. So that's, a, I think, at the heart of the problem, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean I think what what the, what you're pointing to is is this reality that the the places where people go for information is shifting. You know, I I work with undergraduates every day and I I I feel really privileged to be in that position because I get to see it happening in real time. Um and I think that if you talk to anyone who does get a lot of their information from um, you know, Twitter and Facebook or what used to be known as Twitter, um, these, these large companies, you can tell it's not just a platform, right? Um, and so I think that one of the things that's important that's going on is this sort of ongoing conversation in, in Washington about, you know, sort of what is the right standard to hold these companies to? Should we be considering them if not as platforms, what is the something else moving forward? You know, and, and I think that what happens in our next round of national elections, frankly, is going to determine who's at the table to continue to have that conversation.
0: So with your undergraduates relying on information <laughs> they get on, online, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I think 75 percent of Americans get their political news. Yes, you know, I was going to f- say,
2: it's not just the undergraduates. They just no, are happy to talk to me about it. <laughs> so. Right,
0: I'm talking about, you know, the, the statistic is that 75 yeah. percent of Americans get their information largely from Facebook, which is usually about sharing predetermined and agreed upon ideas amongst your friends, which is not particularly helpful so are you finding that to be a a problem and of course you've got ai coming down the pike as Mm -hmm. well where you're Mm going to be wondering about whether these kids are borrowing stuff from ai
2: you know i i I definitely want to say i probably have a biased sample because i have you know smart undergrads in my classroom who are bringing it up and asking me about it um and what they you know i think that the way that they are approaching it is with eyes wide open in a lot of respects. I think that they know that there is sort of a vast ocean of information out there um, on their social media outlets. And and I think they have a pretty skeptical eye towards a lot of it. You know, the question is then, where do they go for news that they can trust? Um, I think that's what becomes a challenge. I think they know at this point and have been sort of aware enough of what's going on in terms of deep fakes and like, all, all sorts of things being generated that aren't based in reality, I think they're very keenly aware that that's going on. I think the question for them is now, so then where do I turn to, right? What are the good news sources and um, how do I find that and share that with my friends um, and make sure that my friends aren't sort of falling into these traps and rabbit holes?
0: Well, you know, there's some been some questions raised about the incredible popularity of TikTok, Mm-hmm. and the extent to which the Chinese government may have influence over it uh, because it's a Chinese company. And there's quite a lot of handwringing going on in Washington about that. But in general, what's the situation vis-à-vis the understanding amongst uh, your students about the, this new phenomenon that came in with Donald Trump, alternative facts, fake news, Now, of course, we've had a pretty scary example of a deep fake in the primary in New Hampshire where um, they manufactured the voice of Joe Biden Mm -hmm. advising people not to go to the polls. So are they also aware of this kind of wild west out there of alternative (laughs) facts?
2: Yeah, I think that I really think, I mean, this is anecdotal based on my conversations with my students in my classes um, every week but i think they are and i think that they are you know i think they're concerned about what they see their friends sharing you know and they're trying to figure out how to have conversations about what people are sharing i think that they're very aware that there's sort of a lot swirling around both with things like you know the fake calls in new hampshire but also everyday stuff they're seeing on tiktok and and through their social media outlets i think they're also you know, trying to think about how to have conversations with other people in their families about what they're looking at. You know, what are, what are the YouTube channels that their parents are really deeply invested in, you know, that they have concerns about? What are, what are the news channels that the other people in other generations that they are connected to, what are they looking at? So I think that, you know, as, as people who are consuming a lot of social media, I think that the undergraduates I talk to are skeptical and alert. And, and really looking to try to figure out what's the best way to navigate it without, you know, like everybody else, they're trying to figure out the answers as they go.
0: So just in the last couple of minutes then, do yeah. you see any way, uh, Christian, of the United States returning to some kind of consensus about what is real and what is true? I mean, there was uh, a consensus in the days of Walter Cronkite when him and his counterparts on ABC and NBC uh, delivered the news, the American people basically accepted it. And you know you can't be in the news business and get things wrong every day. If you get mm-hmm. things wrong once, you can, you're in big trouble. So right. a, a lot of the skepticism about the legacy media is, is misplaced because mm-hmm. the New York Times would be out of business and so would the Washington Post if they kept making stuff up like nowadays you're free to do And then nobody seems to go after Fox News for doing it. But the the long and the shorter it is, you know, Christians get their information from Christian broadcasting, conservatives from Fox, liberals from MSNBC and so forth. Is there any way to reestablish a consensus in this country about what's real and what's true?
2: You know, I, I, it's kind of a big question, I have to admit. I think that the when I think about this question, it's it's to me one of the most troubling, right? Because how could we have democratic processes which are fundamentally based on, you know, people being able to weigh in and feeling like they have good information informing those choices without any sort of consensus or I, I worry even a desire to get to a central, you know, set of understandings of what's going on. Um, to me, I think that part of the solution and and maybe it's a small part, maybe it's a big part, Is is really agreeing on, you know, the necessity of having sources of information be these key parts of our democratic institutions. You know, I think that before we can get to a place where we have a common understanding of sort of what reality even is, I think it's important to get to a place where we have a common understanding that it's important to have independent reporting. It's important to have access to a wide array of books in your local library, right? And news sources um, from wherever you're living. We live in the internet age and wide access to good media outlets requires so much independent work by people to really figure it out. And so I think that moving towards having common understandings of how that has value in a democratic process is probably the first step before we even get to a place where we can try to understand reality um, as, as one set of facts again. Um, because right now, you know, I think that there are too many, there are just so many more options pushing in the direction of, you know, reality is the way I as an individual understand it and I as an individual feel about it. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's not necessarily a, a formula for an informed and um, equitable set of democratic processes.
0: Well, Christian Jogi Phillips, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
2: Thank you, Ian. It was my pleasure.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Christian Jogi Phillips, who is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Southern California, whose research is focused on the intersection of race, gender and immigration in American politics. And she's the author of No Way to Run, Race, Gender and Immigration in American Elections.